Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, Executive Editor, Foreign in London. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. I'm Jeremy Cliff, Writer-at-Large in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 26th of January. You are listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then... Later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, Chancellor Olaf Scholz confirmed that Germany will send at least 14 Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine and give partner countries permission to send their battle tanks as well. This decision, though welcome, came after months of stalling. The war started by Russia does not allow delays. And I, and I can thank you hundreds of times, and it will be absolutely just and fear, given all that we have already done. But, but hundreds of thank you are not hundreds of thanks. We discussed what led to Germany's U-turn and what toll the delay has taken. Then we discussed the alarming rise in mass shootings in the US so far this year, including a series of shootings in California that left 19 dead in less than 48 hours. You know, as we celebrate the Lunar New Year today, it's intended to be a joyous occasion. Uh, so I want to first of all give my condolences to the family who lost loved ones today, uh, last night at Monterey Park, and the victims in uh, Alhambra. Words cannot say uh, how much we are grieving with the family members and uh, that suffer through this tragic events. We also take a listener question on what led to the resignation of New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. For months now, Kyiv has been asking its Western allies to send battle tanks to aid its counteroffensive against Russia. And for months, Germany has delayed both agreeing to send its own Leopard 2 battle tanks, as well as granting permission for other countries like Poland to send their German-made Leopard tanks. But this week, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has reversed his decision. So Jeremy, I want to start with you and ask what kind of reasons were we seeing out of Berlin about why they did not want to send tanks? This 
has been a long-running story. The idea of sending Ukraine proper battle tanks has been in the ether almost since all the way back to February the 24th last year. The idea has been suggested and at points individual countries have suggested doing so. So in June last year, for example, Spain floated the possibility of sending Ukraine some of its Leopard 2 battle tanks. At that point, Germany said no. And the consensus, broadly speaking, was that was a step too far. But over the last months, pressure has built on Germany to do so. It's clear that the likely spring offensive that we may see from both sides in the war there will turn a lot on tanks. Strategically, the Ukrainians need to punch through the Russian lines, possibly split the occupied zones or split the currently single occupied zone in Ukraine into two. And that will require that sort of material. Now, there has been a kind of growing momentum in in other capitals. And Ukraine has been explicitly asking Germany to both send some of its Leopard 2 tanks and approve the transfer by other states of those tanks, which it requires under re-exporting rules since September last year. So this isn't a new request. But the German government has been pretty uncomfortable about acceding to this. And they've presented a series of reasons, the most of which turn around the idea of we don't want to act alone. There's this phrase in German, keine Alleingänger, literally no going it alone. And I think the fear is in, in, in the chancellery and in other parts of the city that seeming to act unilaterally, particularly given Germany's history vis-a-vis Russia, which weighs heavily on, on minds here, would be too much of a provocation. So the view is we need to build a broad coalition. We could still debate whether or not that was a sincere excuse or whether it was simply a, a reason not to act. And perhaps there's a bit of both in that. I think Germany is on a journey towards greater responsibility. It has acknowledged this now cliched idea of the Zeitenwende, the turning of the eras, but it is a long way from the assumptions and the view of Germany's role in Europe that prevailed until quite recently. And there's a certain amount of catching up that has to be done. Anyway, the view among Germany's partners, and I think in Kiev, grew more impatient in the last weeks, culminating at a summit in Ramstein, which is an American military base in Western Germany on Friday, which was expected to be the point at which Germany would agree to greenlight this the sending of these Leopard tanks. It didn't produce the agreement expected Some of the newspaper reports here in Germany talked of pretty antagonistic encounters between German and American officials. In recent weeks, Scholz has been emphasizing the idea that it's not enough that other European countries join Germany in this, but that the US has to as well. The US as the superpower, as the power that can supposedly look Russia eye to eye. And so he's demanded that the US include some of its Abrams tanks as part of this tank coalition. So it didn't look good by the end of last week, but I've always taken the view that Germany would eventually approve this and that it was more a matter of time. But things did move unexpectedly fast this week. And we're recording this on Wednesday, a couple of hours before we're doing so. Olaf Scholz confirmed that Germany was greenlighting this transfer in a speech to the Bundestag. He stuck very firmly with the timing of his decision and defended the fact that he'd insisted on such a broad coalition of of support and fellow states doing this. But now it does seem that those tanks will be on their way to Ukraine within a relatively small number of months, probably about three months by the latest reports. So that's where we've got to now. You spoke of some somewhat hostile meetings at Ramstein. You've written a great piece, which we'll link in the show notes. You talk about the eroded trust that a lot of Germany's Matic allies and partners have now with which they view Berlin. Will this U-turn 
repair that damage or are there going to be lingering scars? Briefly, I should say that the German government does deny the reports that things got so ugly vis-a-vis the Americans. But even putting that to one side, there have been obvious expressions of frustration from public American figures, for example, their ambassador here in Berlin over the last week. So it's safe to say that there has been frustration among Germany's allies. As I've written, I do think that Germany has squandered trust and diplomatic capital by taking so long to reach a decision that I think it was always going to reach at some point, particularly not just with the US, but also with those states in Central and Eastern Europe that have often been stepping up disproportionately in supporting Ukraine, that I think have long been a lot more clear-eyed about Russia than Germany, particularly when we look back only a few years into the past and Germany's pursuit of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline or whatever, and states that I think, look to Germany with a certain suspicion. Can we really count on Berlin to have our backs? So I think that a more proactive decision-making process, starting in September, when Ukraine put that request in, could have brought together a coalition not so different from the one we have now. Whether the US had to be involved to this extent is debatable. I mean, I think it's welcome, you know, the more the more support for Ukraine, the better. But I also would have welcomed Europeans getting together and showing that for once they can actually take the initiative and not always relying on the Americans to hold their hands and in providing their security. And let's not forget, we're not far off a US election. The next administration in Washington may not be friendly. And I think it would have been it would have been a great opportunity for Europe to show we can pull together and play a leading role in this. So I think a lot of capital has been squandered, but we are where we are. Obviously, the decision now does draw a line under that. And I think that it will have a significant role in the war. I'm not myself a defense expert, but defense experts here and elsewhere are saying that if now the numbers of Leopards and Abrams and also Challenger tanks from the UK are brought together in a timely way, transferred to Ukraine, this could make all the difference in the war. But I think for Germany now, it's about delivering. It's made this commitment. The German armed forces have suffered years of underinvestment. And so this is an opportunity for the Germans to show that they can get a sufficient number of tanks, as I said, initially 14 into Ukrainian hands as quickly as possible. But then I think there's going to be need to be a process of rebuilding trust led by Berlin, particularly with those partners that look to some of foot dragging over the last months and think, this is not a serious part that we can, we can do business with. Just one other quick point on that. This logic that we have to have the US by our sides in sending these tanks, or who knows what will happen? Who knows you know, how Putin will respond to that provocation? And I think there is in the back of people's minds this fear of could the war go nuclear, which is not, I don't think it's illegitimate. It is a risk, but it speaks of a lack of faith also in NATO, I think, by some in the German government. Not all, I should say, that this is more a feature of the social democrat component of the tripartite German governing coalition. But it does speak of a a lack of confidence in NATO's Article 5. The Europeans should be able to support Ukraine militarily, knowing that they are part of an organization that has collective defense at its core, without having to rope the Americans in every time. And I don't think they meant to query the validity of Article 5, but implicitly, I think it was there in those arguments that we have to have the Americans. Yes, this is good news. It's right that Ukraine received this support now, but I think there's going to be a rebuilding of trust and an ongoing process of a change of attitudes in, in, in Germany for the right lessons to be learned and applied. I can really understand some of the exasperation that would have been felt from allies, especially the idea of almost questioning the level of US support that Ukraine is receiving when the US has provided far and away the majority of financial support to Ukraine in this conflict. And also, in many ways, it's, it seems from the outside like somewhat of a self-own for Germany, because while they have also provided a lot of financial and material support to Ukraine, 
it's in these areas of these big grand gestures where they delay and prevaricate. And when what we all know they're going to inevitably do is agree to send them in the end. So they're, they're providing the support, but getting absolutely zero credit for doing so because of their delays. From the outside, it's very interesting to watch. I can understand definitely allies' frustrations. This is something we've seen happen again and again with Germany. It's not just about the tanks. We've seen this since the beginning of the war. One wonders when that will shift and we'll see Zeinven really take hold and we'll really witness that, mm. that leadership. One thing I wanted to maybe bring Katie in on is a bit more on what kind of difference we might see to the conflict brought about by the provision of these tanks to Ukraine. Also, just to add that from here, we are expecting imminently, and it may well have happened by the time that this episode is released, the US to confirm that it is also sending expected to be around 30 Abrams M1 tanks plus recovery tanks. The argument here, certainly the argument that was being made in public as to tanks or no tanks, was really very different to what we've seen in Germany. This was much less about going it alone or not, crossing red lines or not. This was more of an argument that some have said is very condescending to Ukraine, that these tanks were very complex. They take months to train on. They take a significant amount of manpower to maintain in the field. These are complex gas turbine engines. It's a 70-ton vehicle. So the argument here was that these are not the right vehicles for the job that Ukraine needs now. But I think rightly, you've seen Zelensky push that let us decide which which weapons we need. We are the ones fighting this war. We feel we need these tanks. I think where they are going to be most critical, and I think there's no timing on the American side of when these tanks would actually be deployed, and then beyond that, when they would actually be available in the field, I think is twofold. One is signaling, and I think this is one of the real harms that came from the extraordinary saga we've seen in, in Germany over recent weeks which is signaling to the Kremlin, we are in this for the long haul. This is not the case that if you are able to mount spring offensive, perhaps take back you know, a, a couple of times some territory, that Western support for Ukraine is going to crumble and they're going to be pushed to the negotiating table uh, on disadvantageous terms. We are thinking about this through the spring, through the summer for as long as it takes. In terms of the specific battlefield capabilities, I want to caveat this with that I am also not a defense expert, so defense scholars, please do not angrily tweet at me. But I think type of positions that we've seen Russia prepare over the winter months are much more well-prepared defensive fortifications. So, you know, trench networks, dragon's teeth, these are positions that if Ukraine is going to be able to punch through and push back, they need serious heavy armored vehicles to do. So, the, you know, there is a strong case to be made for why these tanks are necessary and how important they will be in the coming months. But I, I think above all else, the important signal to, to take from this is that support for Ukraine is not dwindling. You know, in fact, Ukraine's Western partners are looking at how to do more, how to equip them for the next phase of the war. If I could just come in on the models of tanks, again, same caveat, I, this is what I understand from military experts, but the, it's the more the better. And the fact that the US is part of this coalition, one can only welcome. 
I think the reason why Ukraine specifically wanted leopard tanks is that they're the backbone of many European militaries. And therefore, once you've aggregated a few given by a number of different countries, you have a big force, but it's also one that can then be supplied, repaired, spare parts can be delivered from within Europe rather than across the Atlantic. I understand that on training Ukrainians with these tanks, it just is slightly easier to do it with leopards. But obviously, the Ukrainian government seems delighted that it will receive this broad variety of tanks. And then, Megan, just to come back to your point about Germany's cell phone, as you put it, which I think is absolutely right. And it's not for the first time Germany has done the right thing, but with so much prevarication that it hasn't gained much diplomatic credit for it. And I think what this comes down to is leadership. The idea of leading in Europe is a complex one in Germany for obvious reasons, but it is something that the governing coalition has recognized that it needs to do more of, that Germany does need to lead more, does need to take more responsibility. Uh, Schultz was in Paris on the weekend to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the Elysee Treaty with France. And he talked, he used a quite French language, actually. He sounded a bit like Emmanuel Macron. He talked about Europe having more sovereignty and having greater control over its own circumstances. But I think to actually then deliver on that involves also this, I've referred to it before in this pod- podcast, but the Zeitenwende im Kopf, so the turning point in people's heads, where actually Germans start thinking not just we will move with everyone else once everyone else is lined up alongside us, but maybe for once we can be pioneers, maybe for once we can set the initiative rather than endlessly waiting for everyone else or letting things happen around us. And that shift to that leadership mentality, which is needed from Germany, Germany is the continent's biggest economy, also just logistically and geographically, it sits at the very heart of Europe. It has obvious historical responsibilities for the interests of the continent. And I think intellectually that's recognized, but the instincts associated with that reality are taking a while to emerge among the German governing class. Where is public opinion in Germany on this? Are we missing that in some way Schultz's actions are actually playing better at home than they are as we're watching them abroad? They are. And I think it's fair to say that Schultz has positioned himself roughly in the centre of German public opinion. You could very broadly sketch it as three three roughly equally sized parts, one of which says we're doing about enough, one of them said one of which says we're doing too much, one of them says we should be doing more. And Schultz has parked himself in the middle of that. And so it's true. German chancellors, we may expect more leadership from them, but they have domestic politics just the same as leaders of other countries. However, I would argue that we've seen this with public opinion already in Germany, that when the government opinion, when the government policy changes, often public opinion has followed. The public was a great deal more cautious nine, 10 months ago, since when Germany has done a lot. And as you say, Megan, Germany has been a great supporter of Ukraine. As Scholz was saying in the Bundestag earlier today, it's given roughly about as much as Britain. You wouldn't always know it from the optics and the language. But I think that's also about what's needed is for Scholz and others to to try and lead public opinion more rather than merely follow it. I think that Germans are cautious. Again, some of that's for historical reasons, but they're receptive to serious arguments on this. I think we've seen that time and again. And when they're polled on the kind of principles, on this being a war of regression, on this being unprovoked, on the future of Europe's stability and peace being at stake, they get it. They really do. And I think sometimes one's almost a bit too generous to to Schultz when it comes to this stalling and foot dragging by saying the Germans are all pacifists because of World War II. It's not as simple as that. So I think it's absolutely right to raise public opinion. But I do think, I don't think that is quite the get out that some of Schultz's defenders, including in the press here in Germany, have suggested. And for our second subject today, on Saturday, the 22nd of January, a 72-year-old man in Monterey Park in Southern California shot and killed 11 people who were celebrating the Lunar New Year at a dance hall. Just two days later, a 66-year-old man killed seven people across two farms in the Half Moon Bay area in Northern California. 
These attacks have taken place against the backdrop of surging gun crime in the U.S. So far in 2023, there have been 39 mass shootings across the country. So Katie, as you're in D.C., I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of the context of these two particular shootings in California in the recent days. Yeah, so the first took place on Saturday night, the 21st of January, which was the Lunar New Year Eve. And it took place very close to where our Lunar New Year's Eve festival was happening in, in California. Many Asian Americans were out celebrating with their families at the time. A gunman entered a dance hall that was filled with older members of the community and, as you said, killed 11 people. What we know so far are that those victims included two Taiwanese Americans, one Chinese citizen and one Filipino-American. And as the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, was in a hospital on Monday meeting the victims of that first shooting, he was pulled away to be briefed on another mass shooting in California in Half Moon Bay as he tweeted about that tragedy upon tragedy. In the second incident, as you said, a gunman killed seven Asian and Hispanic farm workers. So I think my first response when I heard about the first attack, and I think many people's response here, was that this was another hate crime, that this was taking place in the context of what has been an extraordinary rise in violence against Asian Americans since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, fueled by the kind of rhetoric that we've heard from President Trump on down with really racist language about the virus and taking place on Lunar New Year's Eve. Your heart just sank when you heard about this. It looks from the early information that is not what either of these shootings are, that there may have been personal grievances um, and, and different motives involved. But it, I think it, it is right to understand that for many people in the Asian American community here, this is how they first experienced it. And this is the reality that they're living with. I was looking at some of the statistics before I jumped onto this recording and the latest surveys show around a third of Asian Americans have changed their daily routines, such as their fear of violence or attacks. So, you know, that is a real lived reality for people here. The other lived reality for people here is just this extraordinary rise in gun violence and mass shootings. As you said, this is the 39th mass shooting so far this month, and it's not even the end of January. That included earlier this month, a six-year-old child shooting his teacher in a first grade classroom. So there is a very serious problem here. I will give you my personal emotional response to it, and then I'll give you my more analytical um, judgment of it, which is that, you know, our children are less safe here. I have a two-year-old son. I am desperately worried for the kind of country that he's going to grow up in if this continues on its current trajectory. And I'm worried too about the active shooter drills that he will have to do when he goes to primary school. He'll have to learn to get behind a bookcase and hide from a gunman who's coming down the corridor. That is a reality that children should not have to live with. And it's abhorrent that is still where we are. And the kind of weapons that we're talking about here, I've spent a lot of time reporting from conflict zones. These are weapons of mass violence that you see in wars that have no place on the street of a major city. And I know that as an adult, and maybe it's because I'm a more recent implant to the US, and because of that background of reporting, you know, I find myself sometimes in restaurants here in DC, thinking about where would I get into cover here? What are my exit routes? So that's a sort of immediate personal emotional response to, to the gun violence. But this is a massive political issue. Polls consistently show that a majority of Americans want legislation around gun control. They, they want 
reasonable gun controlled measures. And I think we're going to see that play out over the next couple of years now that there is a very narrow Republican majority in the House of Representatives. So that suggests, particularly with some of the very far-right figures who have ascended to extraordinary power within the Republican Party, that it's very unlikely that Kevin McCarthy, the new speaker, is likely to bring any discussion of gun control to the House floor. But it will be interesting to see whether, as with abortion access, that is actually going against the will of the majority and whether there's a political price to pay. Final point on this, which is I think this is also a foreign policy issue, I've written about this previously, I think after the Uvalde school shooting, we need to understand in this country how the United States is viewed abroad. When Biden was inaugurated, he talked about not just leading by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. Now, when Antony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, travels to China early next month and wants to raise very important human rights issues in China, such as the treatment of, of the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, his opposite number, Qinggang, will say to him, as Chinese officials do all the time, what about human rights in the US? What about the rights of citizens to go peacefully to school, to work, to dance halls on Lunar New Year's Eve? So I think it is an important domestic political issue, but it's also a foreign policy issue, which unfortunately is not to say that I think serious action is in any danger of being taken. It's become a topic that we've discussed frequently enough that it just becomes increasingly baffling that it isn't being handled with more political urgency within the U.S. Is there any indication that the Democrats could be thinking that they would take some lessons from the abortion issue and see the polling and then really push that as an issue, maybe ahead of 2024? I think there is an argument that Gavin Newsom, the Democratic governor of California, is already doing that. There is a lot of discussion that he may well, if Biden doesn't run, and he probably will, but if Biden doesn't run, there's a possibility that Gavin Newsom will stand. And he is using very strong language on this, talking about the American approach to gun control is a suicide pact. He is taking a very strong stance. And the political calculation behind that is that there is public support for action on this issue. But the domestic political atmosphere here is going to get significantly more fraught over the next two years. So unfortunately, that doesn't speak to the likelihood of action in the short term. But I do think this is going to be an important issue. I think it's also, Jeremy and I have talked about the right way to, to translate Zeitenwender. And Jeremy, you've written about it also being a turning of the generations. I do wonder whether that is also going to feed into the rationale here as the generation that has grown up doing active shooter drills and whose classmates and whose peers are the age range that are that are often being killed in these shootings. As they mm-hmm. become voters, as they stand for office, I wonder whether that's going to be where political change comes from. But it's deeply, deeply depressing that the most optimistic answer I can come up with is hopefully younger people are going to take action and push this forward. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. 
Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now for our final section, it's time to hear from you with a section that we like to call You, you Ask Us. So Zoe asks us, what happened to Jacinda Ardern? So on the 19th of January, New Zealand's Prime Minister made the shocking announcement that she was going to be resigning from her position within weeks. Now, this is months and months ahead of New Zealand's next general election, which is scheduled for October. As I think probably every listener of this podcast will know, Jacinda Ardern has been the globally popular prime minister of New Zealand since 2017. She rode in on a wave of Jacinda mania where she was the darling of liberal progressives around the world for her progressive stance and her outspokenness, especially against figures like Donald Trump. And at a time when it seemed like there was a wave of strong men, she provided an example of the opposite of someone who could lead with compassion and humanity that I think really inspired a lot of people. But while she was globally very popular, some would say far more popular than someone of a tiny country usually experiences, she could be a bit more of a polarizing figure at home, particularly her policies when it came to handling the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks to her policies, New Zealand didn't suffer a wave of death on the scale that many other countries experienced. I mean, I'm speaking from the UK, Katie's in the US, where both countries saw huge numbers of people die. I think fewer than 3,000 people in the entire pandemic died in, in New Zealand. So it's really an extraordinary number. 
So in that regard, it was very successful, but it did include very tight lockdowns, very tough border restrictions, widespread vaccine mandates that were really, I think they were really hard on the country. And economically, it took a big hit. But I think also it was just very hard for people both in the country and for people living outside the country, New Zealanders who lived abroad, they suffered a lot. I mean, her tenure as prime minister, I have never witnessed someone that I have received more just adoration notes from readers throughout my time covering her from the first part of her, her prime ministership. And then there was such a hard pivot after the pandemic. And I received, and no one else, people don't usually write to me to talk about their prime minister, but I got, I've had so many emails from people who feel like they need to correct the Jacinda mania reputation that she, she has. And were just really wildly unhappy with a lot of her policies. Some of them, I think you could, you could lump them in with the extreme end of those factions, the anti-vaxxers, the people who hate masks, people who don't want to see any kind of lockdown whatsoever. Every country has their version of that. But a lot of people who I don't think you actually could have lumped them in that same category, who just did actually feel that they really did suffer a lot economically and just faced a lot of isolation during that time. So it was a divisive policy. And as a result of that, there was a lot of personal backlash against her. She received a huge spike of death threats in, I think, in the last six months or maybe the last year. There was two attempts from vehicles to run her prime minister van off the road. So, I mean, call that assassination attempts. So by the time she resigned, while it did seem to come out of nowhere, in a way it wasn't really that surprising. I want to make clear that she did specifically say the rise in death threats was not the reason why she was resigning. And just so I'm not putting any words in her mouth, I'm going to read a little bit of her resignation speech. After she said that she was stepping down, she said, I know there will be much discussion in the aftermath of this decision as to what the real reason was. I can tell you that what I'm sharing today is it. The only interesting angle you will find is that after going on six years of some big challenges that I am human. Politicians are human. We give all that we can for as long as we can, and then it's time. And for me, it's time. One headline that emerged shortly after her announcement was, I believe it was something from the BC about her resignation. And it was with the very cliche, tired line, women can't have it all. And I just gently, or maybe quite forcefully, want to push back on this idea that just because she resigned, doesn't is not should not be indicative of any way that women can't have it all. I think the opposite, actually. I think we should take this as a sign of something that more people and especially more leaders should pursue. That when you don't want to be doing something, you're not enjoying something, you don't have it in you to do it well, you should stop doing it. And I think the fact that she called time, resigned on her own terms is actually entirely admirable. And so I think just the lazy cliche of women can't have it all and that she couldn't somehow hack it because she had a child and a high-profile career. It's almost laughable, which is almost why I didn't want to bring it up. But I did feel I needed to say something on that. If, more, if we saw more politicians recognizing in themselves that they're no longer able to do the job well, I think the world would be a far better place.
I agree. And it's so rare that you have a politician who leaves to some to a significant extent on their own terms. The assumption is that once you've got power, you just cling on to it until it's prized out of your fingers. I think it's healthy for a politician to come to that recognition. I couldn't agree more with what you say, Megan, about the coverage and about this idea about it's, oh, she couldn't have it all. The only thing I'd add is just I don't fully subscribe to the kind of the kind of classic international liberal Jacinda mania. Obviously, she got some things right. She got some things wrong. I know within New Zealand, another contentious topic is she didn't deliver on her promises on affordable housing, which I know is a huge topic there. But one thing I do think that she did well, and I actually was at an event she was speaking at in on the fringes of the NATO summit last summer. And I asked her about countering polarization in society. And she spoke very, I thought, very compellingly, more than I think I've seen pretty much any other world leader do, about trying to stand up for civil discourse in society and countering the push towards the extremes. And of course, that's something that she did do, I think, very effectively in the aftermath of the Christchurch massacre. 51 people were murdered in in a terrorist attack against two, two, two mosques. And she was praised for the compassion that she found to respond to that. And actually, to loop back to our previous discussion, in banning semi-automatic guns and assault weapons. So to go back to grasping for points of optimism on the American gun debate, New Zealand showed, thanks partly to her leadership, that it can be done. So I think an imperfect record, as all political records are, but I would highlight that as being one of her one of the better moments of her premiership. And I would just add briefly that as someone who primarily covers autocrats who are involved in the business of removing term limits and craving the way to stay in power for life. It is refreshing to see someone stand down of their own volition on their own terms. Mm. And before, as Jeremy said, power is prized out of their hands. So I wish there were more leaders who approached democracy as Jacinda Ardern did. Democracy is arguably more about how leaders are separated from power than about how they're united with it in the first place. Thanks to everyone who's sent in questions to us. Listeners, you can send us yours at newstatesman.com slash youaskus or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with Joshua Kurlancic on China's Global Influence Campaign. If you're a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please do. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a very good review. It really does help. Our producer today has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.